whatever you want. Backstreet Boys? Backstreet Boys. I, yeah, that used to be my song, but actually my new song, you know, everyone knows, everyone knows the Ansem song, right? But my, my favorite song is actually um, um, Suspicious Minds. Suspicious Minds? Yeah, you know by uh, Elvis? No, I don't listen to Elvis much. Classic. Classic, Classic. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So the battery's low, Let's by the it. way. I know. If not, do you guys just giving me hand signals, 10 minutes and 5 minutes? And like, just in case it dies. I'll give you 10. I don't know just if I can, Yeah, I'll give you 10. All right. 10? Okay. Let's or if you can do 5 for me. 5? Okay. We'll, we'll improvise. We'll improvise. Be good. We'll just sit here all day. Yeah. Like, it's fine. <laughs> chat among friends. Um, all right. They've started the countdown. Let's do this. Okay. So... <laughs> I'll start on a countdown from three. Uh, three, two, one. Hi, I'm Coral Movaselli. Uh, today I'm joined here by Marvin Lau, a partner at 500 Startups. For those of you who don't know about 500 Startups yet, uh, it's an early stage uh, venture fund and seed accelerator. It was started in 2010. It's one of the most prominent ones in the world. Yeah, we've done all right. You've done okay. Done right. uh, that's very humble of you. Um, you cover digital media, ad tech, marketing cloud, e-commerce, and mobile startups across the globe. Is that right? And a lot of SaaS. A lot of SaaS. Which is why I'm here. Which is why you're here yeah. at SaaStock today. Um, you're ex-Yahoo. Mm -hmm. You were there for 10 years. A yeah, dinosaur, a right? I am a dinosaur. You're a, di I'm a, you're dinosaur. a I'm an old man. I'm an old man. Fossil. <laughs> 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 Um, you love the Backstreet Boys. We were just talking about this earlier, but one of my anthem songs. One of your anthem songs, but you have a, you have a, you have a Elvis Presley, Elvis Suspicious Presley. Minds. Yes, it's a classic. I gotta Google that after this. It's a great song. It's a great song. <laughs> I, I was a teeny bopper going, uh, growing yeah, up. I am so. much older than you, so <laughs> I was probably just dated myself. <laughs> <laughs> but I did love the Backstreet Boys and snuck into some of their concerts in Toronto, actually. Great uh, band. Skydome. Um, so today I'm joined by Marvin Lau. You've done quite a lot. You've had an interesting career. Um, uh, for Scump of Yahoo, right? <laughs> or Silicon Valley. How, how did you get to where you are today? What were some of the bigger drivers behind that? Um, I think I was just, if I'm very, very honest, I think I was incredibly lucky. There was a timing aspect of it, so I moved to Silicon Valley. I'm originally Canadian like yourself, so I uh, was raised, born in the U.S., but actually raised in Canada uh, to Taiwanese immigrants. And Where I, in Canada? Uh, Vancouver or nice. Hancouver, right? Hancouver. Um, and I moved to San Francisco in the beginning of 99. So this was actually probably near the, the middle, close to the end of the gold rush, the first tech dot-com bubble. And I lucked out, right, in many ways of just the work that I got. So I didn't luck out the first job. My first job I got, got in, in Silicon Valley was at a PR firm. And I was so awful, they fired me on my birthday. Not a joke. Okay. Uh, lasted about four months there. And then I lucked out. I just was randomly searching the web for looking for a job because San Francisco was expensive. Yeah. And I got into a company. I became a very early employee at a company that had just raised $30 million. Um, it was an e-commerce company. Spent two years there. And of course, the bubble popped. And so this was in 2001. I was almost out of work for like, I was really out of work for almost five months. In 2001, one of the world's most expensive cities, down to my last $500 literally. And then my boss's boss at my previous company, Libris, was like, hey, my wife is like looking for somebody to join their team. Would you be interested? I'm like, hell yeah, I need a job, right? And it was Yahoo. Uh, Yahoo is one of the four companies. And original plan was to go there and 
work for a couple of months and then go to business school and ended up spending 10 and a half years there as the company grew. So we went from 2,800 people to close to 15, 16,000 people after we laid off like 4,000 people, right? So just watching this crazy growth. And also back then, you know, this is why stock options and equities really, really important. I was very, very fortunate to sort of join relatively early. So I took two years off after my Yahoo experience and just was spending time angel investing, advising, uh, speaking at conferences and mentoring a lot of startup accelerators. And one of them was 500. And so I think they felt guilty for me spending like two years just mentoring for free. And I just ended up joining, the, joining them and actually starting their San Francisco office. And I've been there six years now. And so I fell into it, like literally this is all luck, but I worked really hard. Yeah. But a lot of it just, I think being in a place that had massive growth. So we talked about networks, right? Of, if you want to be in the center of, of like, you want to go somewhere, let's just say in media, like you'd be in New York, right? Or you'd be in London, or you would be in LA. Um, if you want to be in tech, it's actually San Francisco or New York or probably London or Stockholm or someplace. You want in fashion is probably, okay. yeah. Or, or you, want to be in, um, you want to be in fashion, the best place is probably like, it's probably not San Francisco, it's most likely like London or Milan or Paris, right? So you want to go where there's a lot of density of like-minded individuals and that great saying of just you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with is accurate, right? Because that raises your game. And so I was very, very lucky to be sort of doing these like massive wave of expansion. And what have, you've done quite a lot um, in your unconventional career trajectory. What have you learned the most from your greatest failures and your successes? Um, so we, we, I think we talked about this earlier, and one of the things I think that I've been partially lucky, but, and especially in this day and age where there's so much change, I think too many people are actually chasing the money. I actually think it's a mistake, and I don't, I, this isn't the follow your passion BS stuff, right? It, it's actually like really understanding, having some level of self-awareness of like what really drives you and what you like to work on. Um, and so for example, in my career where I've always done well is when I've not chased money, but I've actually chased like interests where I'm like optimizing like learning versus earning, right? Mm -hmm. I think there are times you have to go work, think on the earning part, but actually particularly in your 20s and 30s, I think you have to focus on the learning part. And so taking chances in your career, whether you're a big company person trying a startup or vice versa, mm -hmm. I think you want to have as broad of an experience as possible. Um, I think I was very, very lucky, you know, just sort of in the mentors I had. So having great mentors was really critical so, sort of for me to get to where, where I was right now. And, and I still have great mentors and they push you, they help you think about the world in a different way. And so really valuing the learning versus earning piece, because I think if you do that well, a lot of times the money usually does follow. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, uh, that has luckily has been the case at least up until now. Okay, yeah. so what, what drives you is learning. And chasing, we talked about it before yeah. in our last Chasing learning curves. Training, chasing learning curves, yeah. yeah. And, okay, so that's really interesting. You had mentors along the way as well. How did you find those mentors? And at what age did you start thinking about finding mentors? Because it's not something that you think of when you're just getting out of grad school. Yeah, I, I would say it was not anything. Like, I really, like I said, I literally am the Forrest Gump of Silicon Valley. I've met a lot of these people through work. Very, very fortunate. Like, people forget that Every major company, whether it's a Google or Facebook or eBay or Yahoo, there's always a magical five years of a, of a company when they're going through massive growth, but they also just attract a lot of a density of just incredibly 
talented, smart people. And I happened to be lucky enough, you know, between 2002 to 2007, when, we, when I was at Yahoo during that time, of just it attracted a lot of very, very top-notch people who are now running major companies or funds all across the valley. And so that became my peer group. And that was incredibly helpful in raising sort of the game. And I think just also just like number one, it's just like be a decent person, um, be curious, um, hopefully have some level of social skills and actually legitimately try to contribute to other, other people. So mentorship is really about, it's a two-way street, right? Mm -hmm. And so I try to keep in touch and try to add value to the mentors, but they've also been super helpful for me. So it is really a relationship. And also just not being a douchebag, right? And actually not being transactional. And so one of the, I think one of the differences, and I, I, I've been very public about this, where I'm very interested in the New York tech scene, but I actually think the biggest thing that's actually held back the New York tech scene is really this attitude of transaction, right? Mm -hmm. This transactional you know, attitude of like, I'm only gonna talk with you to see like what I can get from you, right? Yeah. Um, only if I can see some value from like right away. And that's just so short term, because number one, people change roles all the time. And I also think that's such an awful way to live your life of just like everyone you meet is just like, I, I, there's a term called big timing, which I heard, have you heard this term? I haven't actually. So, so big timing it. is like, you know, you're at a party, you're talking to somebody and you see them looking over the shoulder to see if there's somebody more important to talk with. Oh, I've heard like, that. Like I hate that, right? That happens to me all the time, right? Well, <laughs> so that happens to me all I the time. I it doesn't happen yeah. to you. Yeah, okay. and so, so just like, I hate that, I hate big timing. And, and I think there's a lot of people where they're just like always looking for, they're not in the present, they're short-term greedy. And I actually think the people who thrive are, are gonna say that term like long-term greedy, right? Because it, it's, this is what's great about the Valley. You, you, I'm raving about the Valley, there's a lot of problems too, but what's great about the Valley is that there's not always that immediate sort of like value judgment of just like, you're this junior person. I remember meeting Kevin Systrom when he was just like the startup person. And look at him now, right? Yeah. And so it's just very hard. You don't know where success comes from. And so it's very, very hard to attest where it's like, oh, wow, well, you went to great school, or you're from this background, like you're, you're somebody worth knowing. I'm like, I don't know, you should just be nice to everybody. Yeah. Right? And it's also one of the things that I find to be wrong about our society is that we place value on the productivity that people add, like in terms of the workforce, in terms of the economy, as opposed to who that person actually is. And, and by the way, people change a lot, change. right? People's yeah. trajectories, like you'd be surprised at trajectories of folks who, I mean, I remember investing in, in, and this is why I love investing in startups and working with startup founders, like you don't know, it's like the best thing that I love about working with startups and investing in them is, it's really, is like we're in the human potential game, right? Mm -hmm. And that person of just like, I, I was talking to one of my founders, and so she was one of the first founders I invested in. And it's just, a, just watching her, like she was like 24 at that time, and now she's about 27, 28, okay. running when she was just her and, and two co-founders, and now it's her and a company of like 90 people, they're on track to do 40 million in revenue, right? And I'm like, oh my God, like you've totally surpassed me in every single way. Like you yeah. just don't know where these people come from. She was always very smart yeah. and knew she was gonna be successful doing something, but just it's a human potential game. I find that is a mentality that is common amongst a lot of uh, VC guys is because you guys are constantly looking, VC guys and, and girls, is that you guys are constantly looking at opportunities and potential. Because when you invest in a company, it's not doing You have nothing, you have nothing. You're, nothing. I mean, this is as close to alchemy as you possibly can get to, right? Like you're, and I, I think startups and entrepreneurship is actually as close to alchemy as you can get to because you're creating gold from nothing, right? Mm -hmm. From air, and that's, that is literally what's happening. And 
so we're here at SaaS Talk today. Can you tell us a little bit about your talk and your thesis? Um, so at SaaS Talk, um, I did a panel on when to VC versus sort of bootstrapping. And I actually think that one of the biggest issues is just I think VCs and VC funding is venerated too much. And they like a lot of startups, particularly SaaS, should actually think about bootstrapping earlier and longer than they think, right? Like the natural inclination for a lot of folks, like, I'm just going to go raise a bunch of money and then I'm just going to go and like grow this thing and they'll be off to the races. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know, should you raise money? And I think a lot of it's just self-awareness of what exactly you want, right? So if you want to be a unicorn, great, maybe that's the right path. Or you maybe just go and see, you, you have more optionality when you bootstrap in some ways. Mm -hmm. And do you find a lot of startups and a lot of startup founders want to go straight to VC? Yeah, a lot of them do. And I actually think that's, it's a mistake. Um, I, I think it's better off that they own as much of the company as they possibly can, take mm -hmm. their time, manage, the, manage what little capital they have, and see sort of where, go, where things go. You have more optionality. At what point do you think they should start thinking about taking VC funding? I think, well, it depends on the space, and so it also depends on, on teams' sort of like goals, right? I think if they're looking to just build a five, and not just, like a five to $10 million a year business, and that's like the end goal for them, you, you should probably not raise any money or raise very little and not raise money from VCs because for, for many of us, I'm looking for you to go sort of like big all the way, right? And go big or go home. And so it's a very different mentality. If you, and I think one of the challenges, once you take VC money, it's very hard to get off that path. And so I, I say this a lot of just, when you take VC money, it's like getting married and you can't divorce them, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and so you're on that path and so I have many, many friends who, startup friends who've raised quite a lot of VC money, they regret it. I would say in general, probably about 40 to 50% of them regret taking that money. 40 to 50% yeah. because of the wrong timing. Um, I, think, right I, I, I think partly the wrong, the wrong VC. Okay. <laughs> That's pretty common. Okay. And, I mean, it's, it's kind of similar hit rate if you think about marriage, right? Like divorce rates, like probably 50%. Yeah. So it's the same thing. And then the second part is really just like, oh wow, like, I don't want to grow a unicorn, right? I actually am just happy having this five to $10 million a year business, mm -hmm. and, and that's awesome. And so I think it's really about understanding what you want. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the wrong VC, yeah. so there can be right money and wrong money for your business. Yeah, for sure. What is wrong money? What does wrong money look like? Um, so, I mean, okay, so, so without bashing any sort of like no, VCs. No, not, no one um, particular. But, but I think one of the challenges is just that a lot of VCs overpromise and they don't deliver. A lot of VCs actually can't help you at all and it's ultimately just money, right? Or a lot of times expectations in regards to what you want being very, very different, just like marriage, being very, very different what the VC wants. And so for example, let's say somebody comes and offers you a great takeout of say 5x of your company, like that's life changing for you, but the VC is going like, no, I want at least like 10 to 50x, and that's actually where you have a lot of problems, and so I see that a lot. Okay, and you mentioned that they can't help you. Help you with what? I think whether it's giving good advice, I, a lot of, not a lot, but yeah, actually a lot of VCs just give like horrible advice because they've never run a business before. And even, even, even if they haven't run a business, I actually think for you to be useful as a VC, you've, you have to have done a lot of deals and you have to have a fairly large sample set to be able to give, to have that pattern recognition. If you've done like four or five deals, 
and it's so early, like, you know, bearing in mind that it takes a long time before you know if you're a great investor, you're successful. It's probably five to 10 years before you know if you're good, mm -hmm. right? And so it's just like, great, you've done like three or four deals, like, you don't know anything. Yeah. Is that how you would suss out bad investors or bad money? Um, I mean, look at the backgrounds, right? Mm -hmm. I just think if you've, if all you've done is like investment banking or management consulting and you've never run anything or you haven't done a lot of deals in general, good or bad deals, mm -hmm. then I don't know. I, I have questions on sort of how much you can be helpful. And so as long as that like, you don't oversell and don't overpromise, I'm just like, look, it's just money. I'll give you advice or I'll make some introductions that are, might be relevant. Here's a bunch of people that might be relevant. I think you need to be very, very honest about where you can help and where you can't. Mm -hmm. and, and I think a lot of VCs overpromise. Okay, so it's about having an honest conversation to begin. Yeah, and, and really setting expectations. Just like marriage. Just like marriage. Just like marriage. And maybe there's a prenup as well. <laughs> you know, I, I have a I have a very successful founder friend, and one of the things that she did was that even like even you think about using the analogy, just like even with her and her co-founder, like they had a marriage. They're not married and not any relationship, but they they actually had a marriage counselor like help them like work out stuff. So there's a lot of parallels. This is a people business. Okay. Right. And what do you think differentiates, because you've, you've worked with so many startups, mm -hmm. right? You've seen them grow, you've seen them fail. What do you think differentiates a good startup, like a successful startup uh, from, a non, from a less successful startup? Huh. So I would say a big part, and this is not anything you have a lot of control over. I think there's a, the personality traits of founders. There's certain aspects of personality that I think they're learning machines. Um, they have a massive chip on their shoulder. Like they want to just, they're builders, and they're just going to work on this thing no matter what. And there's that, and they scale themselves, right? They're learning machines. They want to learn about themselves. They're, they're very customer-focused. Mm -hmm. and, and everyone talks about this, but there's very few people that are really customer-focused, right? Like you're spending all your time learning about everything they possibly could learn about their customers and their problems. I think that's a great trait. I also think one thing that's hard to figure out is timing. It takes a long time to build, like, you know, average unicorn or average huge successful companies, like nine to 12 years, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times, it's just like a lot of us, whether you're an investor, whether you're a founder, you get the timing wrong. And a lot of times, you're just way early. And so I've invested in amazing founders with amazing business models, with amazing markets, but like just, I was just so off on the timing. Like we were like five years early, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the same as being wrong. And so it's just because there's no business, right? Like it takes, you know, when I see things, these things happen, I, and it's gotten a little bit better about it, just like looking at trends and how they all come together. It's never just one trend. It's usually two or three trends coming together to drive forward. You know, so a, a, a great example I'll use is like, if you look at a lot of the companies like in, that went public in 99, 2000, 2001, right? Dating myself again. But like all those businesses, they actually did make sense. Like there's some version of that business in existence now that's very successful. Mm -hmm. But then when you, you look back then, you're just like, well, they all made sense, they're just way early. And the main reason is because like, now there's what, almost three billion people online, right? Back then, worldwide, there's maybe 200 to 250 people, you know, 200 to 250 million people, much smaller audience. So just those business models just couldn't operate at scale. And so it's a timing issue. I actually think it's, it's partly founder traits. Do they have grit? Are they willing to just like grind this thing out for a long time? Because sometimes it'll take longer for the market to develop than you think. And what about the element of who your co-founders are, right? Also huge, right? And in some cases, I think that a lot of these founder and co-founder relationships are sort of these like shotgun weddings. 
and it's just like, I need a co-founder because everyone says I need a co-founder. Without really sitting down, it's the same thing with investors, sitting down and understanding what are your expectations, right? So like, if one founder wants to go big and the other one wants to have a lifestyle business, you're gonna have a huge issue, right? Mm -hmm. Or one founder wants to sell this business in three or four years, not that that's possible, and one wants to go the long haul, that's also something, and I don't think people have honest conversations in general, whether you're founders, whether you're dating somebody, like people don't have honest conversations on expectations. And I think that's where a lot of the problems actually happen. So you have seen co-founders actually get together in the early days and just have really honest conversations. No, it doesn't happen that often. It doesn't happen that often. But you would advise for that. I would strongly advise that because this is a, let's just say you're looking to build a big, big company. Like you're hopefully in this for like the next like at least five to 10 years. And you want to make sure the people who are there with you beside you like also have the same expectations. There are, have you heard of like uh, um, Entrepreneur First? Yeah, I love them, awesome. I, I, I'm a big fan of, of Matt, Matt's a friend. Love what they're doing. What do you think about that model of bringing people, strangers together from diff three different backgrounds, right? They have, they, they, have a, they have a methodology yeah. behind it. it. It's high risk, high gain. I think it's awesome what they're doing in general. Um, and they've had great success. And I actually, I like the fact that they're diverting a lot of this great talent towards sort of entrepreneurship, right? I, I've, if you've seen me speak publicly, I, I firmly think that everybody doesn't need to become an entrepreneur, but needs to become more entrepreneurial. And so I think that this gets young people in very, very, very early. Are these companies gonna work out? Hard to say, but I do, I'm a huge fan of this model just because of just exposing them to this new world, I think is immensely valuable. They've had some successful exits yeah, so far, yeah. so they're the they seem models, to be doing well. They seem, seem to be doing, doing well. well. Yeah. They're opening, I think, a chapter in Toronto. Yes, too. that's right. I'm super excited <laughs> next year. Yeah, they're 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 doing that. But what do you think of the model in terms of like they have three different types of people who come together and to start a business? Is it that being that methodical about starting a business? I think it's an interesting experiment. Okay. I I think that most relationships, if you think about the best relationships, like I said marriage, partnerships, business partnerships, a lot of times they're organic, mm -hmm. right? They just kind of like, over time they sort of happen and you kind of have, chemistry is really important. Yeah. And I think it's very hard to manufacture chemistry, right? It's like speed dating. I don't know, I find speeding weird. I don't know, that's <laughs> awesome. Um, and I want to get to talk to you about diversity and inclusion. Sure. What can we do to get more women into tech and to entrepreneurship? What do you think? I think it's about having examples, right? Like having great examples of amazing female entrepreneurs. And there are lots of them now. There's, you know, this generation, like this makes me, I'm a, I'm a parent of a daughter, right? So for me, it's super exciting seeing so these great examples coming out, right? So yeah. like, for example, for us, we've invested, like my typical Acceler batch will have any between 30 to 40% of the batch will be like female founder or female co-founder. Yeah. And I actually think like, generally speaking, female founders tend to be just, there's, Everything's a double-edged sword, right? And so I actually much prefer female founders, and the reason is because they tend to be much more humble, they're not as ego-driven, they're much more willing to ask for help, especially when you're on this long path of just like, you have to scale and change a lot, and not everything's gonna go right. Actually, most of the time, it's gonna go wrong. Mm -hmm. and, and what I find usually with guy founders, they hide, like stuff starts, I see them, when stuff is going right, you see, these, you see the regular quarterly reports, and then you don't hear anything for like one or two years, and you're like, what's going on? And, and the difference in general with my female founders, and stuff is going wrong, they're like, hey, I need to talk to you about this stuff. And it's, it's 
great because you can you can legitimately try to be helpful and they're much more willing to ask for help. Mm -hmm. And guy founders just disappear and go and like lick their wounds and just this like ego piece. One of the biggest impediments I find is that we don't have enough, there aren't a lot of women who are technical. So when we consider like SaaS, uh, female founded SaaS companies, there aren't a lot of them because- Paid your duty, right? Yeah, Jennifer, that's she's true. like, so I- There aren't a lot of examples because the technical abilities, they might have the ideas, but the technical abilities can impede them. I think it's changing. And this is actually why I'm very, very bullish about tech and very bullish about entrepreneurship and very bullish about SaaS in general. Have you heard of this term called like low code and no code? No, like I a lot of a lot of these tools, like the back end. So some, I couldn't remember who said this. So I think it's like Arthur C. Clarke or somebody said this. Like the best technology ultimately is kind of like magic, right? It just kind of works. You don't even see the wires and stuff in the back. And this is where you see about the growth of APIs. You see a lot of the tools like Ruby on Rails, right? Think about how hard programming was like yeah. 10, 15 years ago and Ruby on Rails is relatively right as a non-programmer from what my programmer friend sounds like is relatively easy to learn and so you're seeing sort of the ease of technology making these things sort of like much easier right of just it, technology for muggles like mm -hmm. me and so I'll give you an example of like websites and you're seeing this in every single space in general in technology so if you look at I mean, my e-commerce company back in like 99 2000 we paid millions of dollars to some agency to build a crappy e-commerce site and now you can go to shopify right like fast forward 20 years you go to shopify and it's really cheap you're paying you know like 10 20 30 depending on the, the package that you have right. for capabilities that you have to pay like millions of dollars for back like 20 years ago. So I think a lot of the technical stuff is just becoming easier. Outsourcing, you're seeing a lot more outsourcing that's happening. So I, I actually think it's that is not going to be the encumbrance that, that it was like 10 or 20 years ago. And I actually think if you think about female founders leadership, they're much better team builders. And so that's actually how you scale organizations. It's just like one of my, one of my, my founders, a lady named Laura um, Barons Wu, awesome company, Shippo, um, She's skilled at organization now. Like she's just surpassed me on so many fronts. But she's great at the team building piece and really, really understanding and valuing people, right? And understanding what she's good at and what she's not good at. And and I think my best founders are like that. And team building is one of the key foundations that we talked about yeah. to building a successful startup. So what would you what what advice would you leave any women or any person in the room or anyone listening if they're contemplating starting their own businesses? What advice would you give them? Um, I think like learn a lot of the, the startup methodologies, for example, like lean startup, it actually works. I'm surprised continually surprised at how many folks don't follow it. And it's just this book that's one of the best selling startup books, but nobody reads, right? So it's just like everyone has it yeah. on their shelf. Yeah, right? everyone has a shelf and the only thing term they remember is pivot from there, right? And so I, I never understood that part. Like there's a lot of classes you can learn this stuff on. So right. I think self-educate. I think get mentors in general. And so other founders are like one or two or three years ahead of you. I think most founders want to give back because they know how hard it is. Mm -hmm. And I think many of us got to where we were because we had mentors who lifted us up, right? And why I think there is a pay it forward mentality in tech that I don't think that exists in a lot of other places in general. I'm, I'm generalizing. But in general, I think tech, it tends to be generally fo much more forward thinking and has a better pay it forward sort of culture that doesn't exist in Wall Street or real estate, right? Which is a very win-lose mentality. Yeah. Um, and so I think like go and talk to people and most people ask for advice. Most people are in general are willing to be helpful. I find SF, San Francisco is a re really good place for that. Yeah, in general. 
everyone wants to help each other. Everyone says they want to help each other. Everyone says they want to help each other. There is this general culture of wanting to pay it forward, Ge wanting to help each other. Generally true. Generally. But we also joke in California, where it's also the passive aggressive culture outside of London. So we have this joke of like, you know, we invite you for dinner, but we don't tell you where, where we live. <laughs> Right, so it's like it's, it's <laughs> kind of true. Over. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck finding it. Um, but in, in general, though, yes, it's true. Okay, and I know you love to buy books. You have a book buying addiction. I is do. Is that still the case? It's still the case. Still an addiction. Still, still an issue. What is your favorite book? Hmm. So many of them, though. So many, because oh, yeah. you have an addiction. I I, I do, but I, I would say, you know. Business, history, anything. anything. What is the most influential book that you've read? Um, the Art of Worldly Wisdom by Baltasar Gracian. It's an old book. He's a Jesuit priest who actually documented his life in um, during the Spanish court when Spain used to be dominant empire in the 1500s, 1600s. And it's actually one of the best books of just like understanding people, understanding sort of like society and culture and whatnot. And so I still think it's one of the most like underrated books. Everyone talks about a whole bunch of other books, but like this book, like Art of Worldly Wisdom is like an amazing book. And it's actually, you can get it like, because I think the copyright's off, so you can actually get it online <laughs> for free. Online. <laughs> or probably find it on Audible or something. <laughs> yeah, probably. It's an yeah. awesome book. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. That's amazing. That's fantastic. Thank you very it's been much for great talking me. to yeah. you. Yeah. Well, there you have it, folks. That's Martin Lau, partner at Fiverr Startups. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much.